So we're talking about sexual trauma today and how to heal it. Hey, you're listening to Foreplay Radio for couples and sex therapy, and I'm Lori Watson, your sex therapist. And I'm George Fowler, your marriage therapist. We want to take a wide lens on sexuality and talking with you about what we've learned as experts in the field on how you bring your body, your mind, and your brain to the sexual experience. We want to expand people's perspective of just talking about sex, that it's not something to be avoided, it's actually something to embrace and to lean into with an openness to be changed by what you hear. So last week we talked about a traumatized first responder, and this week we're going to talk about childhood trauma. Certainly a lot of work as a sex therapist, and I'm sure as any kind of therapist, we're dealing with trauma from childhood, and particularly sexual trauma is so damaging because it opens a child Mm -hmm. to sexual experiences that they are not ready to have, and they, they don't have any place to put that in their brain. And it's often a betrayal of trust. Most often, sexual trauma is a person that is known to the child. I know parents out there are terrified of this, and rightfully so. But the biggest thing is almost, you know, watch your relatives. Right. <laughs> More than worrying about the stranger. Well, uh, it's so disorganizing for a child when the person responsible for their safety is also the source of the threat. Mm-hmm. Right, It causes a splitting that happens in a kid's mind that says, like, what do I need this person, but they're not safe for me. I mean, it's such, yeah. it's such a destructive, early informative thing to do to a child's developing brain. Yeah, exactly. So I'm thinking of a woman who was molested actually by her older brother, and he was about six years older than she was, and... I mean, just, it was a crazy story, but I I think he started molesting her when she was probably about seven, and he was, that would have made him, I think, 13. So that's old enough to know and old enough to be sort of the age of reason. And it started, he would just come into her bedroom and they slept together. And this is kind of what is problematic in systems where this happens, is there's not enough oversight parents are seeing the obvious and they're not doing anything about it. And in her case, I think her mom came into the bedroom and her underwear was off. Her big brother was in her bed. And the mom sort of scolded her, you know, put your underwear on. You know, what are you doing? Doesn't tell the brother to leave the bedroom, but tells the little girl to put her underwear back on. And what I trust just to not pathologize the parents. I mean, they're doing the best they can with the tools they were given, right? A lot of us don't know how to express our feelings. We we avoid, we put it on other people, right? So yeah, but there's a whole comedy of errors that have to happen for these... System failures, basically. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, I mean, the mother, I'm sure, doesn't want to even begin to think that her son would be hurting her daughter. Right. Uh, doesn't know maybe... You know, a seven-year-old was sleeping without underwear, doesn't doesn't know what's happening and is anxious and doesn't explore it and then doesn't set good boundaries. But this went on forever, and they were unsupervised for hours at a time. And then he regularly molested her. And eventually— I just want to jump in with that. I'm trying to hold both truths as a therapist, mm-hmm. that I trust parents are doing the best they can. But right. they also have to accept responsibility for totally failing their kids. 
Yeah. Right. So in this situation you're getting, I'm like, it must have been horrible for mom to kind of have an intuition, but be afraid to act on it, given the systemic dilemma that she found herself mm-hmm. in. But I also don't want to listeners to think that that is given permission for a failure to do your job as a parent, which is to protect your child. Exactly. Right. Even when, and, you know, I think about it too, systemically, how in the world does a brother molest a sister? Right. I mean, that just doesn't happen out of the blue. There's been failures for right. him as well. And yep. I, I think eventually, as the story came forward, an uncle had molested him. And so he was acting out his trauma onto his sister. I mean, it is generational. You, exactly. you rarely see somebody who is like a bad seed, right? That, that just spontaneously, they're a perpetrator. I mean, they have often been victimized, too. That doesn't excuse it, yep. and it doesn't mean that we don't have to have consequences for even that child and help them, but they need to be healed, too. And this whole system was whacked out because of it. And, of course, by the time she gets to me, she is a grown woman and is shut down sexually, finds herself unable to respond to her partner. And one of the things that is unfortunate is that her pattern of arousal has included her brother. Mm-hmm. So when she gets aroused, she has memories of her brother. And so she it's not that she can't get aroused, it's that she doesn't want the association to her brother. So she shuts that down, won't let herself respond to her husband because then that memory is going to be triggered, that trauma is triggered. And I mean, this is the kind of the perverse thing about childhood molestation, right, is Sometimes it feels good, and we know it's wrong, and it it is wrong, but the body responds to touch, regardless sometimes of who's touching. Touch, attention, affirmation, kindness. I mean, there's a lot of things that the body is getting in those moments. Yeah, and this little girl idolized her older brother, wanted his attention, and he sort of teases her and disdains her at the dinner table, but then is kind and loving and touching in the bed. And talk about confusion and awfulness. So then sexually with her husband, what does she do with this? She just decides, I'm I'm not going to be responsive. I think she had struggled with orgasm and struggled in many ways, just primarily struggled in getting aroused. So eventually, I saw her for some period of time, and of course, that included holidays where she was having to go to Christmas dinner, Thanksgiving, where her brother is present and bring her own children there. And her family doesn't understand why she won't let her children be in the same room with her brother. And they're trying to struggle to have an adult relationship. You know, what do you do about that? And so in essence, the trauma keeps getting re-triggered because this is not a person that she can get away from. And her parents never knew. So part of our work was working through breaking the secret. I think with sexual trauma, with any kind of trauma, people have to tell about it. And with sexual trauma and there's a trusted person involved, you know, you have to break it to the rest of your family that this trusted person hurt me which is so going to be so painful for the rest of the family. And it was so difficult for her to break her mother's heart to say, well, you know, your son did this. Uh, and it was just so painful. But it had to be done in order for her to stop being the cold, distant sister, right? I mean, all her family could see at this stage was she wasn't very nice to her brother. And so she kept being the bad one. Mm-hmm. 
You know, so her shame was compounded by not being seen in the first place, not being protected, and then being designated as she was somehow or another not really part of the family because she didn't want to participate as much. Right. So she has certain moves that she needs to survive. And then she's blamed for those moves, which is so incredibly unfair. It's so unfair. And as we're trying to depathologize this experience, right, we we need to help trauma survivors recognize that it's not their fault that the wires in their brain get crossed, right? Mm -hmm. That when these experiences happen, there can be arousal attached to fear. Mm -hmm. That when your body's in a similar place years later, these things are going to come up again. And if your right. strategy is to avoid it because that means you're a bad girl and you feel the pain and the fear, then you're going to have to cut that off. Mm-hmm. And when you don't recognize it and trying to cut that off, you're losing your life energy in mm-hmm. doing that. Exactly. And then you're, it's set up to really Literally. start to impact. How could it not impact your relationship? Yeah, and then her your family. father gets mad at you for being cold and inhibited. And, you know, here we go again. And it just, it creates these trauma traps, these feedback loops that they're just, it's so depressing and discouraging. Yeah, she's bad again, not only in her family, but with her husband because she's, she doesn't want to have sex. And without that vibrancy in the partnership, her children suffer. They feel the static between their parents that is not the good static, it's the bad static. And she's numbing out something that could bring her life. So very similar to the last week's episode of trying to get her to face something, she has good reason she wants to avoid. That Mm -hmm. in that defensiveness in the problem is really the solution and the opportunity. Mm -hmm. And again, this is where the, the body of research around the importance of going to the body, that this is where trauma is stored. That if you're just going to talk to this lady and tell her she shouldn't feel that way, that's not actually going to access where it's stored right. in her brain. Right? This is a fight or flight response. Right. When there's fear, that the amygdala in the brain is firing away and it's, it's getting our body to activate. That is where the, the trauma is stored. So it's so important that when you are going to be doing this trauma work, that you can kind of get those new experiences in the body. Mm-hmm. Right? You want to you want to put words to where that fear is, where that pain is. Where does it manifest itself? In the stomach, in the chest, in the throat, you can't talk, in your hands, throughout your body, in your feet. People experience it all over the place. And she experienced it in the stomach. You know, her stomach was tense all the time. She overate because of the tension, trying to soothe it in a way that seemed like it was going to work, but of course it didn't work. It just made her gain weight and it didn't change the upset stomach. But even that, what a beautiful coping strategy. Your body looked for some relief from this pain, some feeling of aliveness. Wouldn't eating kind of make you feel temporarily better? Eating is so sensual. Right. But you know? again, it's another short-term solution. Mm-hmm. that in the long term starts to reinforce even more of the problem. Now we're going to throw overweight and overeating into this mix of yeah. already not feeling safe, relationship problems, extended family and problems. And talk about body shame problems. You know, if you're overweight and, and in female, that's going to be yeah. compounded. This work certainly can be depressing at times. Yeah, <laughs> exciting most of the time because I think we can help. But let's come back and talk about... If you're not in therapy or if you know your partner is traumatized or if you have been traumatized and maybe withdrawn sexually, how can you figure this out with your partner? Right. 
speaking with certified sex therapist Lori Watson from Awakening Center for Couples and Intimacy. Lori, what is an intensive? So an intensive is 12 to 14 hours of therapy all in one weekend. And it's a way to really make fast progress compared to weekly therapy. I mean, there's just so much more you can get done when you have a chunk of time. Overcome the challenges in your relationship and your sex life. Learn more about intensives and Awakening Center's other services at awakenloveandsex.com. Hey, I want to let you guys know all about George. He's written and contributed to several books, and I'd especially like to draw your attention to his book, Sacred Stress, a radically different approach to using life's challenges for positive change. His book is about a mission on how you adopt new strategies and turn stresses into a positive force in your life. And who among us doesn't live with a lot of stress these days? We'll keep you posted as to all he's doing. But George and other EFT therapists all around the country and the world hold couples retreats called Hold Me Tight, which is developed by Sue Johnson, and it helps secure your own relationship. If you'd like therapy with George, find him at georgefowler.com. Okay, so we're back and talking about sexual trauma and what you do as a couple. In my experience, most partners who hear for the first time that their partner was molested, it's not a big surprise. Like they've already sensed in their partner's body, something is off, something is wrong. If anything, people suspect it may be too quickly. But when they finally hear this, I've mostly seen it answered with compassion and a sense of empathy for what their partner went through as a little person. Mm -hmm. And that's so healing when that happens. I think that families, you know, hearing the secret, it's different because they are at stake. They have responsibility that the partner didn't have. And so sometimes that's a more difficult conversation. But partners receive it well. You're highlighting the most important start of the process, which is the root of the problem is there was nowhere to go with that Mm -hmm. for a child. The healing is that somebody believes the child and says it's not their fault. Yeah, That compassion is critical. That is shown out for everything, for any kind of sexual trauma, like a rape victim. You know, if she's reassured it's not her fault and tenderly walked through the process, there's better outcomes than a young woman being asked, you know, well, how short was your skirt or anything like that that blames the victim. When we support the victim and we reassure them, sometimes even if a child is molested and tells her parent... And then the parent acts on it, takes responsibility for it, protects them, and talks them through it. The trauma doesn't stay in the child's body. They don't grow up as a traumatized victim forever. It's that belief and support that could happen in the moment that changes everything for a person who is victimized in the moment. And that's what I see in the partners often. It's the first person who deeply, deeply loves them and says, you know, that was not your fault. You didn't ask for that. You shouldn't, that shouldn't have happened to you. And that kind of message is oftentimes the first time they've ever heard it. And coming from a loved person, a person who's an attachment figure, our spouse or partner, it's so powerful. We keep working towards that corrective emotional experience. Mm-hmm that it's understanding is very helpful for getting there, but the person has to experience something new to Mm -hmm. attach to those old memories, to create that new wiring in the brain. So I'm thinking about an example similar to what you were saying earlier. I was working with a wife who was raped earlier 
by a neighbor for years when she was a teenager. Good Lord. Um, again, the cross wiring in her brain, she, to have an orgasm, would actually have to think about this guy raping her. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So with her husband, who's safe and loves her, you know, in those moments when she'd be having an orgasm, she'd close her eyes. She wasn't with her husband anymore. Mm-hmm. Right? And she felt so much shame and guilt right. afterwards that she didn't want to have orgasms, which would make sense. Yeah, she had right? to replicate the intensity. And the experience. husband was supportive of his wife and the pain of what she experienced. But, but that was also, a big he sees one. He her shut her eyes. Well, that he didn't right. know about that, oh, okay. right? But in the therapy, when that was revealed, that she needs to think about him to orgasm, and that was felt like a betrayal to the husband, right? Mm-hmm. So we had to process that and make sense of it. But the whole idea is doing it differently. So when they had a breakthrough, they described making love, mm-hmm. and she closed her eyes, and he knew where she was going. But instead of kind of taking it personal because of the work that they did, he said to her, babe, it's okay to close your eyes. Mm -hmm. It's not your fault, Mm -hmm. right? And all of a sudden, she comes back real quick to him and she's now present. And that's the whole thing with trauma. We live in the past. We're not in the present moment. We leave our bodies. We dissociate. So having the grace of her husband saying it's okay to do that, this is not your fault, allows her body to come right back to the moment, mm-hmm. to actually feel him stroking her her back and, you know, and holding her in a loving embrace. Mm-hmm. Now her body doesn't have to go all down those roads of guilt and shame and pain. It's a lot easier for her to stay present with her husband. Mm, that, that is beautiful. He reassures her and he, he says, I understand why you have to do this. It's, that's what love is. Yeah. I mean, yeah. that's amazing what it could. Love is stronger than fear. I get fear is strong, but love is bigger than it. That is good. Some of the research is about how it, if we're in terrible situations and experience trauma, if we come from secure backgrounds, we don't suffer as much. Mm-hmm. And I think what you're saying is that can be retroactive as well. Like in the secure partnership with our partner loving us, it it works backwards as well. We can now heal the trauma that happened through the security of the partnership. Right. What you're describing sounds a lot like post-traumatic growth. Mm-hmm. A lot of people don't know about, they know about post-traumatic stress, but the same amount of people after an adverse challenge actually reprioritize their life for the better. I mean, I can see this for me after 9-11. My relationship became more important. My values became more important. I want to be part of something bigger than myself. I became less selfish. And so there, there are some really classic things that happen in, in people that experience post-traumatic growth. Right. It's a ev- re-evaluation of their life, the, the trauma event. And for some people, they use it to the good, to help others. I mean, certainly. Yeah, they, and- they, they talk about five things specifically, a greater appreciation for life, a importance of relationships really so much more heightens, important mm-hmm. heightens. There are new possibilities that you saw that you didn't see prior to the trauma, that there's a personal strength that you start to recognize how resilient you are, mm-hmm. right, and how much more you, you can do. And there's a spiritual kind of sense of people that, you know, are engaged in, in a post-traumatic mm-hmm. growth. I listen to country music. Does <laughs> that surprise you? <laughs> and there's this song, Tim McGraw, he sings, like, what would you do if you get the diagnosis? You know, mm. you, you'd go off, you'd ride the bull, you'd parachute. It's it's essentially confronting the most awful thing 
and moving through it, you grab life further. You grab hold of life. And I think that's what you're talking about. And I think this is the possibility that we want for our, our listeners, for ourselves. It's like there is a possibility after trauma that is greater if we can move through it with the help of a partner, with the help of a loved one. I mean, often as a therapist, we're that first person who yes. hears, but our partner can be that as well, that moves people beyond the the crippled, anxious, uptight part and and moves them into this wonderful place where life is more precious. You know, and they take more risks. They're more vulnerable. Exactly. Sex is better. And we don't want to limit it just to the partner or the therapist, mm-hmm. right? A lot of times the person who needs to, the most forgiveness is the trauma victim themselves, right? Because they learn to internalize some negative messages that anytime this trauma gets triggered in them, they get mad at themselves and play those same tapes that sure. people have said, I don't believe you, I can't believe you're saying this again, what's wrong with you, you're a loser, you're ugly, all of these tapes, Right, so so much of the work too is trying to find compassion for yourself. Kind of a merciful stance a toward merciful the self stance. that says, you know, I was a child. Um, yes, my body responded because that's what bodies do. Or, no, I didn't con- tell my parents because you know I thought they would break up. Or I didn't tell my mom that stepdaddy was doing this because she was economically dependent. It's that mercy in terms of seeing the child part of themselves and the the binds that the child lives in versus the adult looking back and saying, well, why just didn't you say something? It's really being and looking at the child again. And that mercy is very healing to the self. I often use the word grace, very similar to mercy. Mm. And how, I mean, if you just imagine that lady you're working with, as she gets triggered, she just shakes her head in contempt saying, I can't believe I, I, I let this come up. I thought I had this all figured out and I can't believe what a loser I am, right? Even that literally shaking her head, you can see where that's stored. Mm-hmm. How helpful would it be if you were able to say, notice what you're doing for good reasons. This is what you just learned, but it's not your fault. So instead of shaking your head, no, what would it be like to shake your head? Yes. And to tell yourself it's okay. This is what happens to trauma brains. They get triggered. It doesn't know time. It comes up again. You're not wrong and you're not bad because it came up again. It's okay. Can you say that to yourself? It's okay and shake your head. Yes. Think of how that starts to retrain the Mm -hmm. body instead of just the words. The self-compassion. The self-compassion. Yeah, that's, that's beautiful. I mean, I think so much of what we're trying to keep highlighting over and over that this is not survival of the fittest. It's not survival of the strongest. It's survival of the most nurtured. Mm-hmm. Right? We are made to be in relationship, to be part of something bigger than ourselves. Right? We're heading in that direction. And so often what trauma does is it isolates us. Separates us. It separates us. Mm-hmm. So, and the healing of the separation, the need mm-hmm. of the trauma, the separate isolation is the reconnection, Right. Exactly. Mm-hmm. The nurture that we need and both to give to ourselves and to receive and to let ourselves receive from our partners, from our friends, from the people who love us. Right. And for a lot of people, they inviting God into that space too. Absolutely. Right? That the more yeah. that we can have love surround us in places where we're feeling dark and broken, the better, richer our lives are going to be. Mm-hmm. I, as I do the research on breast cancer, they show that 
patients who have a relationship with God, who believe in God, they fare better. They have less pain. They have less trauma. I mean, that sense of attachment essentially is how people view spirituality. You know, it's healing. Right. And what's so tragic with so many of these trauma survivors is they are isolated and cut off, not only from their partners, from God, but from themselves. That's not a great space to spend a lot of time in. And, and, and if we're cut off from ourselves, we, we're cut off from our bodies. And of course, with sexual trauma, that includes being cut off from the joyful sexual experience where our body provides pleasure, connection with our partner. One of the most primary healing pathways is cut off from us. And, and again, the research shows actually sexual satisfaction helps healing of PTSD, and that includes childhood PTSD. Well, that's the good news that there is healing in trauma for those brave enough to head towards the trauma and the vulnerability. And next time, we're going to go a little bit deeper and head into the shame. Okay. Thanks for listening to 4Play Radio. Hi, 4Play fam. The biggest support you can give us is sharing our podcast with a friend. You can find us also on socials, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And we'd love your questions and feedback and really do use these to guide our show. We'd also love it if you'd rate and review us. If you're interested in learning more about us and our mission, look us up on our hot new website, 4PlayRadioSexTherapy.com. Call in your questions to the 4Play Question voicemail. Dial 833-MY4PLAY. That's 833-4PLAY. And we'll use the questions for our mailbag episodes. All content is for entertainment purposes only and should not be considered as a substitute for therapy by a licensed clinician or as medical advice from a doctor. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.